Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Jim Crane, the Wallace S. Wilson Fellow for Energy Studies at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. Jim is the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press, and he's just contributed a chapter to When Can Oil Economies Be Deemed Sustainable?, published by Palgrave. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's nice to be back. Now, this time last year, we hadn't heard of COVID-19. Oil was sitting at $67 a barrel. Can you give us the big picture of how the double whammy of the pandemic and the low oil prices has hit the MENA region hydrocarbon producers? Well, yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, it wasn't uh, a pretty picture, right? So, you know, this is one of the world's most globalized and oil-dependent regions. So uh, things got pretty bad. Um, you know, the, 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 the GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation countries, the big Arab oil producers, uh, you know, and some of their surrounding, some of their neighbors, they're essentially the linchpin of the global economy, right? So they provide the fuel that keeps things humming. But the flip side of that is that they're also totally dependent on the health of the global economy. And, and when that's, a, you know, when the, when the global economy is sick, uh, they get even sicker. So, um, you know, we saw this in 2009, um, you know, when the oil prices crashed and um, Dubai especially, you know, has a, has a really globalized economy, uh, fell into a, a really deep hole that they're still digging out from. This time around, they were really hit from all sides, right? They were slammed on the oil revenue front, uh, but also the pandemic curtailed tourism and travel and conventions and hotel ruse, hotel use. You know, even the retail businesses, you know, the mall culture, this kind of famous, you know, uh, uh, mall culture where folks go to escape the heat and, uh, and to, you know, engage their, you know, their consumerism. Uh, that even uh, uh, came under fire. So they really got, got hit pretty hard. And the price of oil, it kind of stuck, didn't it? I mean, it dropped uh, below $20 a barrel at one point, but it's, it's up to 50 now. But that, that hurt as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, here in the States, we, you know, we actually had a negative oil price for the first time ever. Uh, for a you know a, a, a brief period, but um, you know you saw right at the same time that was happening in April, Brent crude, which is you know the benchmark that they use in most of the world, including the Gulf, uh, bottomed out under twenty dollars. It was like nineteen dollars and change. So I mean, we haven't seen prices like that for gosh for decades. So uh, it's um, you know as you can imagine it's uh, it has not been much fun um, at uh, you know the in the uh, headquarters of the big oil companies in the Gulf. How about Saudi Aramco? What's the year been like for them? You know they had a lot a lot of promise when they launched their their big IPO, um, and and you know interestingly the 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 prices of uh, the price of the of of the. Um, uh, Saudi Aramco shares in the Tadawal exchange in inside Saudi Arabia have not, they've come down a little bit, but they haven't suffered anywhere near as much as some of the big shareholder owned companies. That said, um, you know, it's been pretty much the, uh, you know, the season of the Grinch, uh, if, if, if you'll permit me to use a Christmas theme here uh, uh, at Saudi Aramco. You know, their revenues 
in the first half of 2020 uh, this year were only around $23 billion. I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's not for Saudi Aramco. That's less than half of what it was in 2019, the first half of 2019. It was almost $50 billion. And that even was down on, on 2018. 2018, they had, you know, they, they, they first started releasing their earnings numbers and they were, you know, Aramco was brought in that year more than $200 billion, and, you know, about half of which they, they handed over to the government, but their revenues were something like $111 billion uh, in, in, uh, for the full year of, of 2018. So they're way down uh, on, uh, you know, less than, less than half uh, of uh, 2019 and even, even less than that uh, from 2018. So the company's earnings have come down a long way. Of course, you know, depending on how the vaccine, uh, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 vaccine goes and how much people re-embrace travel, you know, since that's mainly what oil is used for, uh, we'll see how, how things go. But, you know, a country like Saudi Arabia needs, you know, 70 to $80 a barrel uh, oil price to fully fund their government spending. Mm. In, in your paper, you wrote of climate change as both a threat and an opportunity for the Saudis and, and the ruling family. Can you break that out a little bit more for me? Well, sure. I mean, so it's a threat. You know, I mean, it's pretty, uh, pretty serious threat for, uh, for the Saudis and for the ruling families, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Gulf more generally, uh, in two ways, right? So it's a threat for them physically, you know, or geographically, right? That, you know, it's an equatorial region, that is on the front lines of climate damage, right? As the as the world heats up, I don't know if you spend much time in the Gulf in the middle of summer, but it's you know it's pretty tough there already. Um, if it gets much hotter, you know some of those uh, uh, you know places where we've got large populations, you know millions of people are living uh, in geographies that might become too hot and humid for human survival, right? You could have heat waves in these places that are just literally deadly for, for normal, healthy human beings, right? So, so if, you know, if the power went off or if you got stuck outside, you'd be dead. Uh, so it's, um, it's a pretty dire situation uh, from that perspective. But they're also under threat economically, right? So, and, and, and it's like a, a lose-lose here. So the first one, phys- the physical threat can be improved if, if the world does a good job combating climate change and reducing fossil fuel consumption uh, and emissions. Uh, the second one is the economic uh, threat, right? So climate action, you know, and reducing consumption of fossil fuels is diametrically opposed to the mainstay of, of these economies, right? They, 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 they stay afloat by, and the royal families stay afloat by exporting oil. All the regimes around the Gulf are funded by oil rents or natural gas rents. So it's a lose-lose. I mean, if we do a good job on climate, they're going to be economically under threat. If we do a bad job on climate, they're going to be physically under threat. So um, the opportunity is maybe a little bit of a silver lining in all this uh, for certain countries. I think maybe Saudi Arabia is the only one that would probably, at this point, would benefit most significantly, because, you know, Saudi oil comes out of the ground with uh, a fairly easy, uh, without a lot of, you know, a lot of energy intensive 
uh, work to get it uh, to you know to lift it up from uh, from underground reservoirs. So there, the Saudi upstream carbon intensity of their oil production is the lowest in the world. You know, Saudi oil right now is the closest thing the world has to green oil. Uh, so they're you know if if the Saudis can maintain or even increase their lead in upstream carbon intensity, you know, they can start marketing that oil based on low carbon content. Now, all oil, when you burn it, emits the same amount of, uh, of, of carbon, right? About something like, you know, 73 grams per carbon, 73 grams of carbon per megajoule. But, uh, you know, upstream emissions vary a lot, right? So, you know, the Saudi upstream emissions are somewhere around 5 grams of carbon, where you might see it, you know, like 30 grams per megajoule from, uh, you know, Canadian oil sands or Venezuelan extra heavy, uh, et cetera. So there's a pretty big, so the, the, the main part, but you know, part of uh, the, the oil business where, where carbon emissions vary is in upstream uh, production. So... You know, right now, if you had a $50 tax on carbon emissions, Saudi crude would trade at a $10 discount to Venezuelan crude. Okay, so that's a pretty big advantage. You know, if there were carbon border tariffs uh, that uh, were enacted, you know, the EU is is in the midst of designing one right now. If those tariffs were, were designed to differentiate among different types of crude by their upstream emissions... Uh, you know, Saudi crude would be advantaged. It would sell at a discount to to more carbon intensive crudes. So it's kind of spurring a um, a race among oil companies to reduce their emissions in any way they can, uh, so that their oil can compete on a carbon basis. Uh, so you're seeing IOCs doing this. Uh, you know, there's a company here in Texas, uh, Occidental Petroleum, that says it wants to go carbon neutral. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of us uh, scholars, energy, Middle East energy scholars, had a, we had a webinar where we, we all had to present a, uh, uh, on a question, should Saudi Aramco seek carbon neutrality by 2050, right? So basically adopting the, what BP and, and, and Shell have, uh, have, have said is their goals. And we all unanimously said yes, you know, even, even folks in the region, um, you know, we thought that, hey, well, you know, Aramco's already got an advantage in pursuing carbon neutrality, uh, and there's ways they can, they can approach this. And if they do, you know, it's going to advantage them even more. Small silver lining there. Yeah. But as you've said, I mean, IOCs, the independent oil companies, they have begun this transition. Aramco has to, with the mantra of downstream diversification, green energy, uh, and the advantages you just laid out. But I wonder how much of that narrative clashes with the last man standing, you know, the we are going to produce the last drop of oil, as the former oil minister famously said, that that narrative, the two don't seem to sit very comfortably to me. Yeah, well, I suppose if you, it, it won't, it, the only way it sits comfortably is if, well, there two two ways, right? If there are, you know, if there are non-combustion uses for crude oil, you know, then if you're not burning the oil, then, you know, there's no problem with it, right? The, car- the problem is not from the oil itself. It's from the emissions, the, the carbon that's emitted when you combust it. So if you find non-combustion uses for oil, then that, then, then there's no, no real issue. Um, 
Uh, the other one is that if you know if you think if you can decarbonize oil, if you you know if 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 you can offset its um, its carbon emissions or sequester those capture and sequester those emissions, um, then it can hang around for at least a longer period, right? You can't you can't simply offset emissions forever. I think there's a limit on that, but uh, you, you know it gives you more time. But I don't think you know the Saudis are going to transition away from oil until it makes no financial sense to keep producing, right? So, you know, they've got such a big competitive advantage in terms of cost. I, I don't see, you know, unless you know, unless there's a technological breakthrough that makes some other type of oil much cheaper to produce than, than what the Saudis have, then, you know, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't see them bowing out early uh, from the oil business. Um, you know, they're, they're lifting costs, and capital investment costs combined are something like seven dollars and fifty cents a barrel. So they're they're just way cheaper than anybody else. So, and this carbon advantage gives them an additional rationale for staying in the business. Because if they bowed out early and handed it off to somebody else, you know, we'd probably see even more carbon. They could argue correctly, you know, that that um, if they gave up early and 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 other producers kept on producing, you know, we you'd have even more carbon emissions, right? And, you know, the non-combustion uses for oil are actually growing more quickly than, than demand for oil itself as a transportation fuel. So, you know, plastics is the big one. It's growing, you know, so three to six percent a year where oil, well, right now oil demand is dropping, but, you know, normal year oil grows, oil demand grows, but, you know, half a percent to one percent a year. So there's some pretty strong rationales for the Saudis to stay in the business, uh, you know, even with a touch of you know, climate concern. Well, yes, I mean, that's, that's the point, isn't it? The climate concern issue. And, you know, we've been focused on COVID-19, uh, but climate change, as you know, and as you talk about, is going to come around again once we clear, get clear of COVID. And, you know, Aramco spent a lot of money arguing that it's really very quite good on the, on the uh, climate front. However, as you, as you point out, uh, they're the single largest contributor to climate change caused by the combustion of fossil fuels. I mean, can they have it both ways, Jim? Well, I suppose eventually they can't. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, Saudi Aramco is responsible for a greater share of atmospheric carbon accumulations than any other single company on Earth, right? You know, according to a couple of sources I've looked at. Now, if Chinese coal production were done under a single entity or even two entities, that would be larger, right? So... Uh, but there are, uh, you know, it's done. It's it's Chinese coal is produced by many companies, so um, n- none of which are responsible for as much, um, you know, c- moving as much carbon from underground into the atmosphere as, as Saudi Aramco. Now, to be clear, it's not Saudi Aramco that's combusting, you know, directly responsible for combusting its oil and and, and putting that up into the uh, atmosphere. It's its customers that that do most of that. Now. Companies are starting to look at their emissions. Uh, you know, I mentioned this briefly, but there's sort of three types of emissions. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're called scope one, two, and three emissions. Scope one and two are, you know, that's scope one is like their own, the company's own emissions in the upstream, especially, and scope two is emissions from their supply chain. So those are the ones that are in focus now that the companies are directly responsible for, and they can they can do something about. The scope three emissions are the tough ones. That's the that's the emissions from combustion 
that uh, you know their customers are are responsible for, and you know, for in Saudi Aramco's case, that could happen anywhere, right? They they export their oil all over the globe, so there's growing pressure on oil companies to offset or sequester those emissions, and there's a huge advantage if they can figure out how to do it, uh, you know, at a, at a reasonable cost, because it means that oil will remain more competitive against alternate transportation fuels and technologies for a longer period, right? I mean, if, if, if oil companies or others are sequestering their emissions or, or even offsetting, if there's a viable way that's proven to be uh, effective at, at uh, you know, um, reducing global emissions, uh, you know, and atmospheric concentrations, then you know we'll see that the take up of electric vehicles and fuel cells and other alternate transportation technologies might not be as rapid or as urgent right and so there's a big prize for oil producing countries for achieving carbon neutrality or something like it because um you know they their 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 source of revenues and uh, uh, you know and they're basically their the regimes that govern those countries can stay viable for longer but uh, the issue of stranded assets, um, the oil left in the ground, Saudis have huge reserves, but could they find themselves holding holding the bag, a bag whose contents have lost their value in a global market that, you know, is losing its desire, its appetite for hydrocarbons? Is that a threat? Yeah, I mean, it's sure. I mean, they've so Saudi Arabia's got 50 or 100 years of reserves left, maybe more, right? It's hard to know. I think they're, you know, the cost advantage that we spoke about and the carbon advantage for now, I think that means that the Saudis won't be as bad off as some regions or countries, right? You know, they, you can imagine Venezuela and Canada, again, you know, with that extra heavy carbon intensive crude, uh, maybe, you know, places like the Russian Arctic or shale, uh, you know, in Russia are really hard to reach uh, parts of the world or... Um, you know, other unconventional resources that cost a lot to develop or that require more energy to, 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 uh, to produce or politically risky places like developing countries. I think you might see their resources stranded ahead of, um, of those in Saudi Arabia. You know, the IOCs, I kind of view them as at, with the, the lowest amount of risk. So maybe they have more lawsuit risk, but probably less risk of stranded reserves. I mean, they typically hold 10 to 15 years of, of reserves and they can and, and, and are some of them, you know, they can change their business models. Right. I mean, they had to do that pretty quickly in the 70s when when they, they got nationalized around the developing world, you know, including you know, getting kicked out of the Middle East oil fields. Um, they changed their business models really quickly and stayed alive. Um, and, you know, they've got a lot more time to do that this time around with, with climate change. So you're seeing some of them move into, you know, heavier into gas or into, um, you know, electric vehicle charging or renewables, uh, hydrogen, et cetera. So, so Saudi Arabia, I think, is in the middle. You know, I mean, it won't be as bad off as some of the countries that have expensive or, you know, geopolitically difficult reserves, but they're, they're not going to get off as easily, I think, as, uh, as the more nimble IOCs. Well, now, nimbleness, that's, that's a good question, because I sometimes wonder just how nimble uh, Saudi Aramco is, given how tightly it's tied into the, the ruling family, and particularly Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who has very expensive tastes, as we know, for 
grand projects. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, you mentioned plastics. All right, plastics have an advantage. But, you know, the world is kind of getting turned off on plastics too, Jim. So, you know, how much wriggle room do you think that the House of Saud and Mohammed bin Salman actually have? Yeah, plastics. I mean, I think the main problem with plastics is that it's a, is a disposal problem, right? People are, they're not recycling them enough or they're throwing, you know, they're, they're getting chucked into the sea or snagged into trees and bushes in the, in the desert or whatever. So, um, I think the disposal problem for plastics, yeah, it's a tough problem. Um, and it's a big problem, but it's way easier than climate fixing climate change. You know, this massive collective action problem that, uh, that the earth faces, but you know, it's still a problem, right? And, and plastics isn't, you know, it's, it, yeah, the, the, the carbon is sequestered when you use oil as a feedstock to make plastics, you know, the carbon is inside that plastic bag or your, you know, whatever it is, your phone or your computer. Um, so as long as you don't burn that thing, as long as that, 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 that plastic isn't incinerated at the end of its life, the, the carbon stays in there, but there's a, you need a lot of heat to make plastic. And right now the heat source for making plastic is fossil fuels, right? So, so you need to decarbonize the heat source in the plastics industry. And that's also, you know, not that easy. So, um, you know, people are saying hydrogen is a good source for industrial decarbonization. So we'll see if, if, uh, if we can get there, but, you know, think about the diversification that these countries face, these oil dependent countries face. I mean, that is also not easy, right? So, Rents, you know, the extraordinary profits that you get in oil, which we call rents or economic rents, um, uh, you know, in, in academia, those are, are durable in oil and they are not durable in pretty much every other economic sector, right? In, in just about every other sector, uh, when, there are, when there's a rent component to profits, when you see these extraordinary profits, uh, it attracts competitors to, to move into that business and uh, the rents get driven down and driven out until you just you're left with normal profits. So those countries, you know, th these countries are going to have to compete with the global economy. They're not going to have OPEC's, uh, you know, uh, uh, production constraints to help them in these other se sectors to to maintain, you know, these extraordinary profits. So, you know, oil rents have have covered a lot of mistakes, as you alluded to as well. I mean, like you know, the invasion of Yemen, for example, or you know, countries having these giant make work bureaucracies where they can hire their citizens and guarantee them high paying jobs. So their policies under a diversified economy are going to have to get a lot more streamlined and a lot smarter. And they're going to have to diversify fiscally, right? So that you're going to see more taxes and a bigger contribution, especially from, from private sector uh, companies, which, you know, right now are not contributing, right? I mean, right now the, you know, in a lot of these oil producing countries in the Middle East, the private sector is viewed as parasitic. You know, they don't hire locals, right? They just mainly import foreign labor uh, at low, you know, low wages and they don't pay tax, right? So there's a huge opportunity in the private sector for, for some fiscal diversification in these countries. You know, diversifying is going to be tough and you're, you're going to be competing with the, with the rest of the world. So, you know, the question is going to be, can these uh, oil-dependent states diversify and maintain these um, this anachronistic monarch monarchies. You know these governments by by autocratic governments by uh, governance by ruling sheikhs. That you know is a big question and it remains to be answered.
Mm, indeed, indeed. And time may be getting shorter and shorter on that. Uh, finally, Jim, let me ask you, do you think that MBS will make a, a, a further move and put more of Aramco up for sale? You know, I think that 5% uh, IPO sell-off was pretty controversial inside Saudi Arabia and inside Saudi Aramco, right? So uh, it was a it was a big hurdle to uh, to, to to even do that small uh, you know IPO on the domestic exchange, but I think we may see other bits of Aramco and other state-owned entities sold off. Right? I don't know if you noticed, but in Abu Dhabi uh, recently, they uh, they sold off some of Adnoc's pipeline uh, network uh, and got a huge pile of cash from from doing that. Um, you know, it looked pretty. You know, there seemed to be plenty of investors that were willing to to um, snap up st- a stake in that. So, you know, the, the Saudis might uh, take a look at that and do something similar. Uh, you know, I think the downstream side of a Saudi Aramco is less controversial. It's certainly less profitable than the the upstream oil production, right? So the downstream being being refining and and the petrochemical sector. So maybe Sabic or you know even the retail petrol stations inside Saudi Arabia and their little, you know, grocery stores and coffee shops. So, so we might see more of Aramco, you know, maybe calved off and then um, privatized, uh, but maybe outside the um, uh, the upstream, you know, oil production side of Saudi Aramco that's uh, so sensitive uh, to, you know, politically sensitive inside the kingdom. Hmm. Interesting. Watch this space. Jim, thank you very much. Oh, sure, Bill. It was my pleasure, um, you know, anytime. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Baker Institute's Jim Crane. He's the author of Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press. And a favorite of mine, Dubai, the story of the world's fastest city. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, You can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.